17, uh, and then work our way down to the end of the chapter today. So the end of the, end of the letter, <clears throat> Philemon is the shortest book of the New Testament that Paul wrote, um, his shortest letter. He's writing it to Philemon. That's where the name comes from. Uh, and, and some other people get mentioned in here too, but Philemon is primarily mentioned. Um, but the whole church that meets in Philemon's home is mentioned. So this letter was written by Paul with the intention of it being read by the church. As, and that's why it's in scripture. It's, it's not just a personal letter that Paul wrote to some guy that has nothing to do with us. It, it has everything to do with us because we are God's people uh, through Christ and we have uh, some real deep things to learn in this. Um, so here's what we've seen so far. We've seen that this, this letter is about um, this guy named Onesimus that was at one point in time a bondservant, meaning he was uh, essentially a slave of Philemon's. But the slavery was a little different than what we're thinking uh, when we hear that word. And th- what, what essentially this was, was it was a, legal, a part of the legal system of the Roman world where if somebody had a debt that they couldn't repay, they had to go into servitude. They had to work off the debt. And so Onesimus was a bondservant. He must have owed Philemon something. We don't know any details about it, uh, but we know that he, he left. He, he ran away from Philemon. He ran away from his responsibility. Um, in the process, I think we're going to see this today, he likely stole um, in, in, to make his escape. He probably had to steal some money or something he could sell. And uh, so he took something from Philemon, ran away, and at some point met the Apostle Paul. We don't know how he met the Apostle Paul. Uh, It doesn't say. But he could have possibly known the Apostle Paul through some of his visits to the church. Um, That's possible. And maybe he went and sought out Paul and tried to find him. Um, That's one theory. There's a lot of theories that commentators have, have thrown out there, but that's one common one. Uh, another one is he may have just met somebody who knew Paul. And just through what we would call a coincidence, um, and what, what God would call his sovereign providence, uh, we would, we, they, they interacted and they met each other. Uh, either way, they meet and Paul leads Onesimus to faith in Jesus. Now, what happens is he sends Onesimus back to Philemon's home uh, with this letter in his hand. He hand delivers the letter himself. And that must have caused a whole lot of (laughs) stir. Let's put it that way. Because Philemon probably wasn't eager to see Onesimus. He had wronged him. He'd done done wrong by him. Uh, And he probably wasn't like the happiest camper. But, but thankfully, Paul's smart and sends a letter uh, to explain the situation. And so that's what we're reading. And this, this really is, this whole letter is about reconciliation. It's about how do we welcome people in to, to not just our lives, but to the church when there is some real potential for harm, right? How do, how do we welcome people in who are not like us, who disagree with us, who, are, who we may struggle with. And so that's the theme that we're looking at. And we're, we're calling this welcome home because that's, I think fundamentally as we read this letter, it is about becoming a welcoming church towards people who you do not want to welcome. 
right? It's easy to welcome someone who's just like you, who believes the same way you do, who lives the same kind of lifestyle you live, who has the same fundamental kind of core beliefs. Of course, we can welcome those people. And we're not going to struggle with that. We're going to like that. We're going to call those people our friends. But the question is, how do we welcome people in who are not like us? who don't necessarily seem to belong, at least on the outward appearance? What, what do we do with people who are struggling with, with sin or addiction or are, are, are in some sort of lifestyle that we would find immoral? And the Bible may even call immoral, right? Like, these are the questions we have to wrestle with. How do, essentially, how do we become a welcoming church for everyone without compromising the beliefs of the gospel. That's the big tension in in the church. But I think the scriptures give us clarity on it. So, So here's what we've seen so far. We've seen in this letter that everything ultimately boils down to being gripped by the character of Christ through the gospel. That's, that's the foundation of all of Paul's argument in this. Paul's whole setup for this letter is you, you've got to be gripped by the gospel and you've got to be gripped by the character that, of, that Christ has so that you can be the kind of Christian, the kind of man or woman that, that can be welcoming. It starts there. It, and then it begins to move, as we saw last week, into being gripped not just by the character of Christ, but by the very forgiveness that we've been offered that then extends to other people. We've got to see that the, that the gospel doctrines we believe have to lead to a culture that actually resembles those doctrines. So we looked at forgiveness last week, and, and that was the primary theme that Paul was bringing out because Philemon had a lot of things that needed to be forgiven towards Onesimus. So now today, though, we're going to get into verse 17, and I think 17 is the key verse in the whole letter. I really think this is the primary thing that Paul is trying to say, and everything else he's already said has just been building up to this. So take a look at it. Uh, Verse 17 says this. So, and I think so is helpful for us to see this as, okay, he's kind of bringing this into summation. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. This, This is a crucial verse for our understanding of this whole letter. Because this is fundamentally what Paul is asking Philemon to do. If you consider me your partner, and it's clear already that that Philemon does consider Paul a partner in ministry. They're clearly dear friends. So there's no issue there. Paul says, "So, so if you consider me your partner, here's what I want you to do. Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Now, that word receive comes from a Greek word um, that it's kind of hard to pronounce, so I'm not even going to try. But it's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as welcome. Um, 
mo most commonly it's used as welcome. Now, receive and welcome, you know, they, they definitely can be synonymous. Um, there's not a huge, I don't have a huge problem with the ESV's translation of receive instead of welcome. But I think that when, when you look at the, some of the other translations, they, they do choose welcome as the translation of this word because I think it really does get to the heart of what Paul is asking Philemon to do. He's being told to welcome this guy in the way he would welcome the Apostle Paul. And so Paul's, Paul's point here is simple, right? Like, we're friends, and if I showed up at your doorstep, how would you welcome me? Well, with joy, right? Like, I, if your best friend that you haven't seen in who knows how long, who may live out of state, shows up at your house, maybe even unannounced, are you going to go, why are you here? No, you're going to go, whoa, I'm surprised you're here, but come on in. Like, this is exciting and, and great. Like, you, you all have people in your life that if they showed up to your house, even unannounced, you'd go, this is great news. I, we love you, and this is awesome. Come on in. Let's have some, let's have some time together. We all understand that on, on a human level. We get it. So, so, but don't miss what Paul's saying. He's saying in the same way that you would receive me if I showed up to your house, you need to receive Onesimus that way. But, but notice that Onesimus is not Philemon's friend. Initially, their relationship was of a master and a servant. Not exactly, you know, ripe for friendship there. And, and on top of that, Philemon was a believer and Onesimus was an unbeliever. And so there was another kind of layer of division there. Right? They weren't just unified in the gospel immediately at that point in time when Onesimus still lived with Philemon and worked for him. Now Paul's made the point through this letter, we saw it last week, that Onesimus actually is a believer now. He's come to faith. He's a changed man. He's at your doorstep. So here we go. You, we've, we've been breaking down the walls of division, which is what the gospel does. The gospel breaks down the walls of division to bring unity. And, and Paul says to Philemon, if you consider me your partner, your friend, you, you consider us in this thing called the Christian life together, then man, you got to welcome Onesimus the way you'd welcome me. That's, that gets to the heart of this. And we're going to spend most of our time today talking about what that looks like in practice but let's work through the rest of the text, okay? Let's finish this, this chapter up and, uh, and then we'll, get, we'll kind of step back to verse 17 and try to flesh this out a little more practically. Um, but let's read verse 18 and 19. Here it says, if, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. All right, so this is interesting because Paul is saying, okay, he's not, he's not telling Philemon, hey, you know, you've just got to write off this whole loss and, you know, Onesimus did wrong, but that's in the past. Just bury the hatchet and move on. No, he actually addresses the issue which is that, for, that Onesimus stole something, stole money or possessions or something, and, and has wronged Philemon in that process. Now, 
Obviously, it was before he was a Christian, but, but still doesn't take away the fact that Philemon has been harmed. He's been wronged. He's out. But notice what Paul does. This is crazy. He tells Philemon, if there's anything at all that is owed to you, charge that to my account. And Paul then doubles down and says, I, Paul, he's emphasizing this. I, Paul, will, I write this with my own hand. He's committing to this and says, I will repay it. So Paul, this is, this is wild to me because Paul's in prison. He's probably under house arrest, but he's still in prison, most likely in Ephesus. And, and yet Paul is committing to repay the debt that, that Onesimus owes to Philemon. Why would he do this? Why is Paul willing to take Onesimus' debt upon himself? And why doesn't he make Onesimus pay back the debt? Well, because this is the gospel in action, isn't it? Didn't Jesus take our debt upon himself? So when Paul looks at the doctrine of the gospel and says, Jesus took my debt, a debt I could never repay, and he paid it for me on the cross, he's probably looking at the, the little bit of money that Onesimus may owe to Philemon as, I'll take that. If Jesus can take all of the weight of my sin on himself, why can't I take a little bit of debt upon, upon myself to pay back this brother who has been wronged? And, that, and therefore, free Onesimus up from, the, de- from the, the debt that he owes. That's a really radical thing, but this is how the gospel works. And it's not, for Paul, it's not just a theological concept. It's a practical concept that actually plays out in how he lives. Right? We, we actually see Paul talk about this uh, in the letter to the Colossians. Um, in Colossians chapter... Uh, in chapter 2, 13 and 14. This, interestingly, Colossians is written to the exact same church that Philemon is written to. <laughs> Philemon was a part of the church in Colossae. So, so this, I do think uh, the, the letter to the Colossians was written after the letter to Philemon. If I'm, maybe I'm wrong on that, but I think that the timing is, lines up there because, in, interestingly, this might, this might interest you, but Onesimus is mentioned in the letter to the Colossians. Um, and so I read that and go, this all worked out just fine because Onesimus is mentioned to this letter in the Colossians. But either way, Paul says, um, verse 13 through uh, 14, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. How did he do this? Having forgiven all of our trespasses. How did he do that? Verse 14 tells us, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul is speaking there of the doctrines of the gospel in which Christ removes our debt, takes away what we owed to God, nails all of our debt with all of its legal demands, nails it to the cross, 
as he is crucified for our sins. And so now what's interesting is we're seeing Paul take that same theology, but bring it to the human level and go, hey, if Onesimus owes you money, I'll take that upon myself. And I'll repay it. That's, that's really cool. Um, he goes on to say in the end of verse 19 that he says to say nothing of you uh, owing me even your own self. I, I'm not exactly sure what Paul's getting at here, but I think he's alluding to uh, the fact that Paul probably led Philemon to Christ. And so Paul's ministry to Philemon at some point in time led him to Jesus, which now he's just kind of bringing back up again, gently and graciously and saying, hey, you know, I will take Onesimus's debt, but don't forget that you kind of owe me something too because you have eternity to look forward to because I brought the gospel to you. I don't know what to make of that. I think Paul's probably the only person in the world who could say that, okay? So let's not, let's not apply this to our dynamics with each other. Um, but Paul's an apostle. He, he's inspired by God to say that. So we'll let him do that. Okay, verse 20, let's keep going. It says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. The act of welcoming will result in refreshment of heart in Christ. That's what Paul's getting at here. Paul's saying, yeah, I want something from you, bro. I want you to welcome Onesimus back in. And by doing that, my heart will be refreshed. Paul will get something out of this. Yes, that's true. He's not, he, what he's going to get out of this whole thing is his heart will be refreshed in Christ. Because as we welcome others in, even those who have, have a bad reputation or who have done wrong, which is, by the way, everybody has, has done wrong. But if we, if we look at this and go, okay, that act of welcoming results in refreshment of heart. It, it results in the refreshment of heart, not only for the person who's welcomed, but also for the people who are doing the welcoming. All right, verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. So again, we're kind of coming full circle here, but Paul is acknowledging Philemon's character, his character as a follower of Jesus, and that character flowing out of his life through Christ's work in him will compel him to do above and beyond what is required. I, I actually love this verse because Paul's going, hey, I know you. And I'm confident of this. Like, I don't have to, I don't have to like guilt you or shame you into doing what you need to do. I know that your character and your love for Jesus is going to actually lead you to do even more than I'm asking you to do. I think what this goes to show, and I, I think I mentioned this briefly last Sunday too, but I think it goes to show that when we really love Jesus and we're growing in him, there comes a point where we just don't need to have our arms twisted to do what he wants us to do. I, I think that obedience and, and following what the Lord wants for us to do does, in some ways, maybe not, it maybe doesn't get easier because we're, we're always struggling with sin, but I think that our motives become 
less impure as time goes on and we start to think, yeah, if Jesus wants me to do this, I'll do this. Like, I don't have to be guilted into it. I don't have to be shamed. I don't have to be, have anyone twisting my arm. As we, I think this is a, this is a display of sanctification, right? The, the increased growth and holiness that we experience as Christians as time goes on. When we're young in our faith, yeah, there's times where we just, we still have this real hard exterior that has to be convinced to do the right things. But, but as time goes on and Jesus begins to melt away all that hardness of heart, our, we don't need to be manipulated into doing what's right. We can just do it because Jesus clearly wants us to. And I think that's what Paul's getting at with Philemon. It's that, hey, I, he's like, I know your character's there, man. And I think that I don't have to like force you to do this. All right, verse 22 through 25 is just kind of the final sign off here. So let's read it. We'll read these uh, three or four verses and then we'll back, back, back up again to verse 17. Paul says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So that's the end of the letter. You know, some, some of this just is kind of boilerplate, like here's some guys that want to say hi to you, right? Verse 23 and 24, particularly. Um, 22 is interesting because Paul says, hey, you know, as you're welcoming Onesimus in, get a guest room ready for me too, because I hope that I'll actually be able to come to your house. And, and it's interesting because he is imprisoned right now. So I think Paul's praying and hoping that he would be released from the, the place he's at to be able to serve his sentence in Philemon's house. I don't know if that ever worked out, but that's, that's what he's asking for. And then in verse 25, of course, he concludes right where he started with the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus. He began the, he began the letter with the grace of Jesus and he ends it with the grace of Jesus. Grace is the whole thing. It's everything. It empowers us. It's the starting point and it's the finishing point of the Christian life. It's all grace. All right, so let's get really practical here, though. We want to talk about the idea of being welcoming because that is where all of this series has been building up to. And like I said, verse 17, though it's a short verse, uh, it's simple. If you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. That's that's all Paul says on that issue. But I think this is the foundational issue that Paul's trying to get to. And that, I think, leads us to ask the question, okay, how do we follow suit with the scriptures here and become welcoming, open-hearted people? Well, here's the foundational answer to that. And then we will, um, I want to show it to you in the scriptures. But I think it really boils down to being gripped, like everything else, right? We're gripped by the character of Christ. We're gripped by the forgiveness of Christ. We've also got to be gripped by the welcome of Christ. That you and I have been welcomed by Jesus. 
so we can welcome others. Gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. And if we get this in our hearts, deeply in our hearts, that Jesus has welcomed me into his kingdom, into his family, into his life, so much so that he describes the relationship Christians have with him as the branches to a vine, like completely connected and all of our life is from him. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing in, in the gospel of John, right? We see this. This is the kind of thing that he's brought us into. He's brought us into life with him and he's welcomed us in that. And I think if our hearts are gripped by that, then the, the outflowing of that is that we would welcome others. I think that's where Paul is taking Philemon, though he doesn't do this in a whole lot of theological uh, argumentation. He does it very practically and just very, like, he, Paul assumes a lot of things in Philemon because he knows Philemon's character is established. He doesn't have to kind of establish all of the doctrines, um, but, but he does call him to that act, the act of welcoming, because Philemon was welcomed and Onesimus was welcomed by Jesus. And so then Onesimus should be welcomed by the church, by the believers. So if you want, uh, turn to Romans uh, 15. Let's, let's look at some more of where the scriptures take us in this. Um, Romans 15, verse 7. I don't have it up on the screen for you, but uh, this verse has become, in probably the last five or so years of my life, one of the most helpful verses in the scriptures. It's just been, you know, I, I, when somebody asks, oh, what's your favorite Bible verse? I don't know that I answer that very well because it just depends on the season of life I'm in. But this has been one of the verses that God has used greatly in my life and um, helped me to see these things that we're talking about. But verse 7 says this, Therefore, welcome one another. Same word that Paul uses in Philemon. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore, welcome one another. This is practical church stuff. Paul's talking about the church. He's talking to the church. And he's saying, you need to welcome each other. And, and he tells us how to welcome each other. As Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. So as we look at the broader context of what Paul's talking about, we have to go back uh, to chapter 14 and the first six verses of 15 um, because Paul makes a very specific um, point here. Before, As he kind of summarizes everything in verse 7 with therefore, welcome one another, he's, he's making a case before that. And we're not going to read through all of it, but let me just summarize what the issue is. Um, Paul is writing to a church in Rome, right? That's why it's called the Romans, the book, the letter to the Romans. Um, this church in Rome had a problem. They had a division. 
They were wrestling with some relational tension. You know, I think we all kind of can get this because uh, 2020 and so far 2021 have been a pretty divisive year, Uh, not just culturally, but in the church. We've seen churches split over masks or no masks. Um, By God's grace, he's kept us together, and I'm thankful for that. But there's been a lot of churches that have struggled. A lot of pastors have called called it quits because they're going, I didn't sign up for this. And then I kind of go, yeah, you did though, but whatever. Um, That's not, I'm not very nice. So uh, I'm not like Paul. Uh, But anyways, um, Paul's helping the church walk through some relational conflict. And it's going to sound kind of silly to you and to me because the issue that they're fighting over seems so trivial. And I think in 2,000 years, when people look back on the world of 2020, uh, masks will seem pretty trivial too, but that's neither here nor there. So um, look at what it says. Verse 1, go back to 14, verse 1. It says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So who are we called to welcome specifically? Those who are weak in faith. Okay. We'll see how he defines that in a moment. So he says to welcome those who are weak in faith, but not to quarrel over opinions. Wow, that should just convict us all right now. We need to repent, right? We don't, we're not called to quarrel or fight over opinions. You can share your opinion, and when someone disagrees with it, you go, okay. It's your opinion. <laughs> Let's agree to disagree on some things here, people. Like, we need, we need more of this in our politics, but, you know, what do we expect from our politicians? So here we go. Um, let's let the church set the example for the rest of the world. How about that? That's what we should do. So don't quarrel over opinions. Now, here's the issue. He says it in verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So while the weak person, the person who's weak in faith is the person who eats only vegetables. This is my life verse right here, okay? This is my life verse. Uh, (laughs) I make that joke every time and it gets a laugh every time, so I'm just going to keep doing it. Um, But anyways, (laughs) the, the the, the issue seems so crazy. The issue is some people in the church think they can eat anything they want and some people in the church think they should only eat vegetables, Now, this is not a diet issue. This is actually, it really does get down in their culture to a religious issue. The the people who are only eating vegetables are doing this out of a conviction that if they were to eat meat, they might eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. That, That world, right, you had meat that was sacrificed in temples to false gods, in the Roman and Greek world. And this meat was then, whatever was left over after the temple attendants had, had some food to eat, they would bring the rest of the, of the cow or whatever to the meat market and sell it for people to buy. Now the problem is that for these Christians that Paul calls the weak in faith is they show up to the meat market and go, oh, I don't know if I am buying meat that's been sacrificed to a false god or not. So what I'm going to do is I'm just not going to eat meat. 
That's a sad life to live, as Paul makes clear. But nonetheless, that's where people were. So, it's, so it, it, it is trivial in a sense, but it's not trivial, really. It, do, it does come down to these people are trying to live out their convictions. And Paul says to them, verse 3, let not the one who eats, this is key, do not let the one who eats, eats meat, he's talking about, despise the one who abstains. And don't let the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. See, Paul doesn't take a side. I mean, he kind of does. He shows his cards a bit by saying, calling the vegetable people weaker brothers or weak in faith. Like, he does show his cards. Clearly, Paul doesn't have a problem with eating meat, even if that meat was sacrificed to an idol. But he's not going to push the issue to a point that says someone has to break their conviction just to, just to appease the people in the church. If they're convicted that they need to do this thing, like eat vegetables because they don't want to do what's wrong, fine, let them do that. They're not breaking any rules. They're not doing any harm. Like, so stop hating each other because of these things. Welcome each other. He goes on to talk uh, briefly about uh, people who esteem one day of the week as more important than all the other days of the week. And there's another division in the church. Um, so Paul just simply says, hey, the people who do these things, they're doing it because they have a conviction and they want to honor the Lord in those convictions. So that's the overall context. I mean, we could keep reading all this and kind of get, digging deeper and deeper, and I'd encourage you to do it. Chapter 14 is an incredibly uh, important passage. But, but when you get to the bottom line of what Paul's saying, it gets down to verse 7 of chapter 15. Therefore, welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. That's the fundamental issue. So what does this tell us? It tells us really practically that we don't have to agree on everything to fellowship in Christ. We don't. We don't have to agree on almost anything other than Jesus and the gospel. There are secondary issues even within Christian theology that says, hey, I, I would differ on issues of baptism with other believers. I would, I would differ on issues of the Lord's table and how that's fenced and dealt with and than other believers. I would, I would disagree with other Christians on, on church governance and how, who, who should lead the church and how the church should function in that regard. There's all kinds of things that I have, have opinions on and, and convictions about that I don't want to compromise and I'm not going to compromise, but I can still fellowship and love and welcome those who disagree. That's, that's where we're at, right? That's, that's really practically where this comes down. If we understand that we've been welcomed by Christ, then we can welcome others, even if their politics are different than ours. Yeah, believe it or not, politics is not a, a, a metric for your salvation. It's not. Because we're not saved by works, guys. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So 
Like, yes, are those things important to discuss? Sure, we can talk about those things. I think there are important issues that in the world that we're facing right now. Of course there are. We can talk about how we deal with national debt and, and cultural changes. And yes, 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 of course, whatever. We can talk about those things, but we have to do it in a way that's not disdaining um, those who disagree with us, who do not despise, despising rather of those who disagree. We, we need to have open arms for people to come in. We also need open arms for people who are not even believers yet. Because how do we expect them to become believers if they're not welcomed? I think this really does get down to things that make us fundamentally uncomfortable. Because because we live in a crazy world, we do, and there's all kinds of things going on that we're like, oh boy, I'm not sure I like that. I'm not sure I think that's good, and, and rightly so. But we need, to, we need to think genuinely about how the church shows and displays grace even to people who are far from God so that they can experience it and be compelled by it and want to believe in Christ. So we, we don't have a morals test before somebody walks in the door. We don't ask you, hey, did you live a pretty good life this week? If not, get back to your car. We don't ask those questions because you're welcomed here. Everyone is welcomed here. It doesn't mean we affirm everything about their life or what they're doing. It's not that we're waving any particular flags outside. We just are simply saying, if you want to be here, you are welcome to be here. And even if your life doesn't line up with what we believe the scriptures teach right now, we're going to love you, care for you, welcome you to Jesus because he can, ta- he can take you and change you. We, we have to, I think we, we struggle with this because we're so black and white that we can't see how we can at simultaneously be welcoming and at the same time, not affirming every little thing somebody does or believes in their life. And you, you don't have to have such a wide divide. Listen, I don't affirm everything in my life. Do you affirm everything that goes on in your life? And you, you're probably pretty cleaned up. We don't affirm the things that are sinful in us. We're not going to affirm the things that are sinful in others. But we're, but we're welcomed with all of our flaws and failures, and they're welcome too. That's how it should be. So anyways, that's my, that's my high horse there. But I, I, I really do get passionate about this because I think that Jesus wants his people to be like him. And let's, let's just talk about that. Okay, so go over to Matthew, so excuse me, Luke 14. Let's talk about how Jesus is because that's what's going to compel us to be like him. Jesus tells a parable in chapter 14. Um, it, it may be one you're familiar with and maybe not, but uh, Jesus is at a feast. He's at a wedding party. Um, and that's cool. Like Jesus actually does go to parties. And he actually, his first miracle was turning water into wine. Uh, so he was the life of the party for sure. So, um, but Jesus is at this party and he's asked some questions. 
And here, let's just look down. We could look at the whole thing, but let's just look down at verse 12 to start with. It says, he also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, look at this, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus is saying to this guy who's throwing the party, hey, you know, it doesn't do you any good to invite all, all your rich friends because they're just going to throw a party and they'll invite you and it's all going to be squared away. It's like what you should do is invite the people who can't repay you. And it says, when one of those who was reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Verse 16, but Jesus said to him, and he's going to tell a story here. He's going to tell a parable. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Do fields like get up and walk away or something? I, I, like this is a lame excuse, right? Oh, I bought a field. I got to go look at it. Can't come to the party. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I must examine them. Please have me excused. Again, I think they're going to be there tomorrow, bro. Like you can probably just go see them then. But. And this is my favorite one, verse 20. Another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. <laughs> Bring her with. Like she, she can come with you. Guess not. So, Jesus says the servant came and reported these things to his master and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, all right, go out quickly to the streets, the lanes of the city, bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, when you've command, what, you, what you have commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, then go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were, at, who were invited shall taste my banquet. What is Jesus? This is a parable, right? So it's, it's pointing us to a, a deeper truth. And the truth that Jesus is saying is this. People who, um, who, who don't think they need Jesus are going to make all kinds of excuses to not come to his invitation. But the people who are desperate and have no way to help themselves and no way to get themselves up in society, those are the people who need to be invited in and loved and cared for and, and it brought into this banquet. So this, this guy throws a feast. All his rich friends make lame excuses not to come. So he tells his servant, go out to the city, get all the poor, blind, lame people, bring them in, fill my house up. The guy says, well, we did that. There's still room at your party. So he says, all right, go out even further. Get everybody in here. 
This is Jesus telling us something. He's saying this is how he welcomes us. He doesn't welcome us because we have it all together or because we can repay him or because we can somehow earn an invitation to his, to his family. He invites us because we're helpless and cannot help ourselves, cannot save ourselves, cannot bring ourselves to him. So we have to be sought and invited in and, and he welcomes us with open arms. That is the gospel. It's not about all Jesus is bringing all these good, decent, rich people in. He's talking about the people who are desperate for him and have no other recourse in life. That's who needs to be invited in. And guess what? That's you and me. Because spiritually, you may be looking great here on earth. You may have lots of money in the bank. You might have even showered today, man. Good for you, right? But listen, you're spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. And so am I. And so we need him to invite us in and to give us his inheritance and to give us all that he has. That's what we need. And that's how he welcomes us. So we are to welcome others as he has welcomed us. It's convicting. And we need his help to do that. But let's, let's pray and ask him for help. Jesus, um, thank you first and foremost that you have loved us, that you have welcomed us as spiritually dead, spiritually broken, completely helpless people. You've helped us. You've brought us home. You've welcomed us. And would you help us to welcome one another? We can't do it without you. Pour this into our hearts, Lord. Help us to see it, not just for ourselves, but for how we can draw this out to others. We pray you would do that here, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.